All right. Good morning once again, beloved. What a blessing it is to gather together once again on this Lord's Day. Um, would you please join me and open your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be finishing up that first chapter today, covering the last couple of verses, 22 through 25, in a sermon I've titled, Love One Another. I want to begin by first reading the text and then after we can unpack these really crucial verses for the, the church together. So let's begin reading there in verse 22. This is a reading of God's living and infallible word. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Wonderful bunch of verses to close this incredible first chapter from Peter. Now the emphasis of this passage is bound up in that one command listed in verse 22, to love one another earnestly or fervently or deeply. And this is speaking to the specific love that we have for one another, the brethren, i.e., your brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, Peter will refer to this unique love uh, several times throughout this letter. For example, example in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Honor everyone, but love the brotherhood. Then again in chapter 3, in verse 8, he says, have unity of mind, sympathy, and brotherly love. And then in chapter 4, verse 8 of First Peter, he says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. So Peter refers to this command four times right here, in this first epistle alone. Now, of course, Peter wasn't the one who came up with this command. Uh, you'll recall from our study in John's Gospel that this was a command that Peter had received from the Lord Jesus Christ himself during the Last Supper. You'll recall it was John chapter 13 and verse 34 where our Lord said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you. that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, how is this a new commandment? Well, in one sense, it's not new. It's the old commandment of Leviticus 19.18. You could say, love your neighbor as yourself. But 
it was new in the sense that Jesus was presenting a higher standard of love. One based on the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Notice what he says in verse 34. That you love one another just as I have loved you. The challenge for us, beloved, is to love one another to the extent that Christ has loved you. And this isn't a suggestion. This is a command. In fact, notice what he says in verse 35. By this, by the way that you love one another, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how they'll know. This is how they'll know. Now, after the Lord's crucifixion and ascension into glory, his command to love one another became really the central theme of all of the New Testament writers. I think, for example, of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, where he says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And in Philippians, that great book of joy, Philippians chapter 2, Verse 2, where Paul says to the church, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. And perhaps you remember from the writer to the Hebrews where it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, Let love of the brethren continue. Don't stop. Keep it coming. And then, of course, there's the epistles. We've already seen it mentioned four times from the Apostle Peter, but also in John's first epistle where love for one another is really his major theme. First John is a thesis of John 13, 34 through 35. Let's just look at a few of these. For example, First John chapter 3, verse 11. He says, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. It's been since the beginning to love one another. This is nothing new, John says. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, the apostle writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. It's the fruit, love. And then in 1 John chapter 2, 9 through 10, he says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So we see this principle instructed throughout the entire New Testament. We are commanded to love one another. To love one another. Peter says it. Paul says it. John says it. The writer to the Hebrews says it. And they all say it because Jesus commanded it. 
But what does that really mean that we are to love one another? I'm sure we all have an idea of what this love should look like. After all, we practice some form of this love throughout every day of the week. But specifically, this verb here that's used by Peter is a verb that expresses the highest kind of love. We've talked about this for the agapeo, agape, love. This is not the kind of love that is based on attraction or feeling or, or emotion, but rather this is a supernatural kind of love, a gift from the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, having been born from above. This is not available to the natural man. This is from above. This is a love that puts others before ourselves. The natural man does not put others before himself. He is selfish and hates God. So, of course, he has no love for anyone else. But it's a love that puts others before ourselves, and that, by the way, doesn't come naturally. This is a love that responds to God's command to love one another just as I have loved you. You can't command emotional love for one another, but you can command this kind of love. For it is the same love you received when Christ forgave you and filled you with his Holy Spirit. This is the love you've been forgiven by. This agape love. So as we look at our verses this morning, I want to again pose some questions. And I posed four questions. You'll see on the back of your bulletin that will help us unpack exactly what kind of love that Jesus and all of his disciples are commanding us that we should have for one another. And the first question that we have to start with is when were we enabled to love this way? When did this happen? When were we able to respond to this command? Notice the first half of verse 22 and the beginning of verse 23. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And when can that happen? Verse 23, since you've been born again. Scripture repeatedly makes it plain that those who are unregenerated, who still walk in the flesh, do not have the ability to love one another, for they do not have a pure heart. That in order for any of us to love one another sincerely or earnestly from the heart, we need our old heart of stone taken out and a new heart of flesh inserted in. This is something that can all be done by God. You see, the natural man does not have the capacity to love like this. It's foreign to his nature. He doesn't know it. He can't do it. And Scripture indicates this to us on a number of occasions and in a number of different ways. For example, in Luke chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, in other words, you're down to the most minute details in your religiousosity and ceremonies, and yet you disregard justice and the love of God. 
Do you know nothing about these things? These are completely absent from your life. You have outward religion, not the love of God. And again, in John chapter 5, verse 42, Jesus said this to the Pharisees, But I know you. You do not have the love of God within you. What an indictment of sinful man. They are without the love of God within them. This is how scripture characterizes us when we were unregenerated. He or she is incapable of loving in this way. Listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? The point, it doesn't. It doesn't, little children. Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. In other words, you can tell a true disciple by how well he loves. That's what Jesus is saying here in John 13, 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we must begin by saying then, as John does in 1 John 4, 12 also, if we love one another, then God abides in us. God abides in us. And on the other hand, God does not abide in us, then we cannot love another with this kind of love. We can, of course, uh, feel uh, natural love, uh, phileo, that is uh, a love that uh, the natural man possesses, certainly that kind of, of love. But this kind of agapeo is a supernatural kind of love. It's a kind of love that seeks nothing in return, but rather loves out of the overflow of God's grace he or she so undeservedly received. A love that is uh, uniquely the possession to believers those have been forgiven so peter faces this question right out of the gate when were we enabled to love like this when could we even respond to such a command as given at the end of verse 22 to love one another earnestly from a pure heart when did that happen in verse 22 peter tells us having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth and what he's saying here is you receive the capacity. You receive then the capacity to sincerely love the brethren at the time when your souls were purified. That is when. And the time when your souls were purified was the time when you obeyed what? The truth. The truth of the gospel. He's taking us all the way back to our salvation. You're born on date. You're born again date. Salvation 
then became the moment in time, this great event that happened, wherein we are given the capacity to love with, the scripture says, a sincere love. And then the verb purified means exactly that, to, to cleanse or to purify. And the fact that this is in the perfect tense signifies we can interpret this way. Now we are enabled to love one another because our souls have been purified. Now that, that has already been accomplished, the, the perfect tense looks to a past act with present continuing results. Now that you have already purified your souls, love one another. Love one another. In other words, the loving of one another is predicated on the, the purifying of the soul. An impure soul, a sinful soul, an unregenerated soul, an unconverted soul cannot sow this kind of love. And by the way, your soul simply means the real you, the inner spiritual being. You are a soul. That's a, simply a composite way to saying the real you. The real you. So, you receive the capacity to, to love one another at the time when your soul was purified. And when was that purification? Notice what it says in verse 23. Since, or for, you have been born again. The prophet Ezekiel looked forward to this spiritual purification when he prophesied all that God would do for believers under his new covenant. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God spoke through his prophet. And he said, And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you moreover, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to obey my rules. So your salvation was entirely a work of God's grace. He took out that heart of stone, and it was God who said, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put my spirits within you. And at that moment of conversion, he caused us to walk in his statutes. He created in you a pure heart, purifying your soul, and having received the truth of the gospel, you obeyed it. You believed it. You believed it. And now, and now because you have been born again and filled with God's Spirit, He's enabled you to love one another just as I have loved you. So question number one, when were we enabled with this agapeo kind of a love at the time of our salvation? Question number two, who are we to love? Who are we to love? Well, let's go back to verse 22. That's tells us there, says to love one another. But 
Who does the one another refer to? Back up in the verse a little bit further, it says, for a sincere brotherly love. Literally, brother love. <laughs> Who's that? It's other Christians. It's the brotherhood. Uh, we are not only been given the ability to love, but we have been given a new family in which to exercise that love. You are in the family of God. Welcome. The one and others here are the brothers, the brotherhood. In fact, it's the word Philadelphia that is used here, and that's what it means, brotherly love. We know that. Uh, it's used here as a noun instead of a verb, and it's saying, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brother love. Brother love. And we have been given the capacity to love one another in a very unique way. A very unique way. God's quickening work at the new birth has given us this tremendous gift of God's love through his spirit as he poured out on us and energized us by that very spirit of God and now is expressed towards our new family, the family of God. This is brotherly love. And this takes us right back to John 13 and what Jesus said in verses 34 to 35, that we are to love one another for by this all men will know that we belong to Christ, that we're in the family of God. So we have this um, new ground of affection to love one another, this, this oneness that we now possess in Christ within the family of God, and it should exceed all of our earthly relationships. And beloved, I want you to understand this principle. It is far more important that we demonstrate love for one another than even that we demonstrate love for the outside world. A lot of times we, we put this backwards because it is the attraction and the love from within the church, the body of Christ, that draws them to us, that affirms to them we are Christ. We are children of God. We are part of a, a massive family. And this is supposed to attract unbelievers by how well we love one another. That is what Jesus was saying. And an illustration of this that's monumental, um, you might want to turn to it. It's in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 27 through 28. Um, this is a very overlooked portion of Scripture, but one that's extremely significant to, to make this point. Um, it really stands on its own. We don't have to go into too much um, outside detail. Let me just read the first section to you in, in verse 27 to, to set the context. It says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. So this is an opportunity, uh, imagine for yourself, to share the gospel with a group of unbelievers. All right? And let's just assume that uh, you and your brother in Christ um, who have been converted out of uh, uh, paganism um, and into Christianity. Um, uh, but now you are a, a Christian and you used to worship as a pagan at the idol um, temple um, there in Corinth. Uh, this is what was going on there. 
And let's assume um, in your past, in your old pagan worship, um, there was gluttony and drunkenness and fornication, um, all these things that, that you were a part of in your old... But now you identify with Christ. And as a Christian, you obviously want absolutely nothing to do with your former way of life. And one of the elements of your paganism was that you worshipped your deity in the pagan temple. And one of the ways that you would do that is you would bring food to be sacrificed to an idol, to a god of the temple. And obviously that god wouldn't eat it, but the pagan priest would eat some of what was offered in the sacrifice, and the rest of it would be taken to the market and was sold for a profit. And then people would come into the marketplace and they would buy meat that was offered to idols. All right? Now, that was a, never a problem for you before when you were a pagan, but now that you are, are a Christian, uh, you don't want to conjure up any of your, your past memories or your involvement in, in that sin. And so your conscience is going to tell you you're going to avoid from, from eating that food that was sacrificed to idols. That was part of your former self. Your conscience wouldn't allow you to eat it because you've been delivered from that kind of thing. That's the setting that's going on here. So notice verse 27 again. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you want to go for the sake of evangelism, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. So, so Paul says, don't even ask. If you want to go there for evangelism purposes, just eat it. Just eat the food. But notice what he says in verse 28. This is just so practical to show us. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you for conscience sake. Now, what does that mean? Well, you decided before you came to dinner that, that whatever was served for dinner, you were going to eat for the reason to win that soul to Christ. Um, you're not going to ask a bunch of questions of what kind of food or, and, and how they prepared it or what's going on uh, for your own conscience, all right? You understand you're, you're, you're trying to meet an unbeliever where they're at, right? We all understand this. But let's say a, a younger Christian has come along with you, uh, a younger brother or sister in Christ, and, and they're a little younger in the faith, and, and he sees a rapper, and he realizes, ah, this is from the, the pagan temple. This is from where we used to worship. And so he whispers to you, we can't eat this meat. This has been offered to idols. Well, now you've got a dilemma, don't you? You've got a dilemma. You say to yourself, if I don't eat the meat, I offend who? The unbeliever. The unbeliever who, who's prepared this for you. But if I do eat the meat, I'm going to be a stumbling block to my brother in Christ. So I'm in a dilemma. What do I do? Do I offend the unbeliever or do I offend believe, the believer? Initially, you might think for um, witnessing sake, well, um, I'm going to um, not offend the believer. I'm, I'm going to offend the believer, not the unbeliever. But Paul says, uh-uh, that's backwards. That's not what he says to do. Paul says, do not eat it for the sake of the one your brother in Christ, who informed you and for conscience sake. In other words, offend the unbeliever. Offend them 
before you offend your brother or sister in Christ. Why? Wasn't the whole point to evangelize the, the unbeliever? Yes, it is. And what Paul is saying is here is the same thing that Jesus said back in John chapter 13. It is through your love for one another, it's through your love for your brother in Christ that they will see the love of Christ. As Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Why? By how well you love one another. It is the demonstration of your love to one another that is the significant uh, element relationally in our evangelism. It is love that attracts the world. And when the watching world sees that not only you don't offend each other, but we truly and sincerely love one another, then they know we're disciples of Christ. And that's the substance of our testimony relationally. You know, I think we believe falsely that the attraction of the church is its uh, ability to develop evangelistic techniques and uh, clever outreach methods that will attract the unbeliever but at the real heart of it all, it's that they see the love of the church. So when a visitor comes in through the doors here, what they experience here is the communion of the saints. They see our love for one another and the love of Christ in the lives of those who have brought them. That, I believe, is the most powerful testimony of all. So... When were we enabled to love like this at salvation? Who are we to love one another? Question number three, how are we to love? How are we to love? Let's go back to verse 22 and notice that word towards the end of the verse. Love one another earnestly, or your, your translation might say fervently or or deeply, um, it's the word ectonos, um, and it's a very important word to Peter. He uses it again in chapter 4 of First Peter, in verse 8, when he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. When we remember the love with which Christ has loved us, and all that he has forgiven us of, it's baffling. It's baffling just how many of us will still hold on to grudges for one another. I mean, it is crazy. So many people within the church are, are still bitter and, and unforgiving. But when we love one another earnestly, fervently, deeply, it floods and covers a multitude of sin. And that is what ectonos actually means. It means to stretch to the limits of a muscle's capacity. To, to literally stretch to the furthest point until that muscle reaches its maximum limit. Metaphorically, it's compared to an athlete running a race and you're straining and stretching to go as far as you can extend yourself. 
That's the idea. So in terms of 1 Peter 4, verse 8, it would mean above all else, love one another by stretching your love as far as it can go, covering whatever sin exists. In fact, it's a lot like what Jesus said when Peter asked in Matthew 18, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus answered him, I do not say to you up to seven times, Peter, but up to 70 times seven. Keep it going. Stretch it out. And beloved, if you struggle with forgiveness, I'd encourage you to read the parable that follows this verse in Matthew 18 of the unforgiving servant. Unforgiving servant is right there in Matthew 18 after these verses. And remember just how far Christ went with his blood as he poured it out for us, covering all of your sins. And so Peter says, above all, keep on loving one another earnestly, fervently, since love covers a multitude of sins. In Luke chapter 10 is the parable of the Good Samaritan. In verse 25 it says, A lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The Lord said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the Lord answered, saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who exactly do I have to forgive? Who is my neighbor? So Jesus said, well, if you want to understand that, then let me tell you a story. And in verse 30, Jesus answered them. He said, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, depart departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The, the priest didn't want to help that man. So likewise, a Levite, another priest, when he came to the place and saw, he passed by and walked on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, and we remember from our time in John, Samaritans were considered outcasts to the Jews. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you. That's loving to the limit. Come across a perfect stranger, you have compassion for him, uh, you pick him up, you take him to an inn. You take care of him, you nurse him back to health, uh, you pay the bills, and you say, whatever else he needs, I'll cover it when I come back. That's stretching, stretching to love the unlovely and the unloved. And that was the whole point. The lawyer just wanted to justify by saying, who's my neighbor exactly? 
Who does this include that I have to forgive? You want to know who your neighbor is? Anyone in your path with a need. So, how are we to love? We are to love one another to the very limit of our outstretched capacity. And it might be helpful to ask ourselves throughout the week a question. You know, who do I know that has a real need? You know, who do I know that's struggling spiritually? Who do I know that's struggling emotionally or financially? Who do I know that's married to an alcoholic? Who do I know that's struggling with loneliness? Who do I know that's a, a single mother struggling to make ends meet? Who do I know that's sick? Who do I know that's ensnared with sin? That'd be willing to sit down and sacrifice an afternoon and, and open up the scriptures in love with. So that's what Peter is, is saying here. It, it, it's a love that is willing to give to sacrifice, that's the love God had for you. God so loved the world that he what? Gave. Gave. Sacrificial love. He gave his only begotten son. It's a love that is willing to, to stretch beyond your, your comfort zone. To put someone else's needs before my own. To love one another earnestly is to love someone, not in word or speech, but in deed and in truth. And it's not so much a requirement, but, but look, look at what he says at the end of, end of the verse. Love one another earnestly from a what? A pure heart. A pure heart. You see, this kind of love doesn't come about externally. It's something we're compelled to do internally from within it's a it's a divine prompting in your spirit and, and i think that's what paul had in mind when he wrote in in first timothy 1 5 the goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart this kind of love is pure it's sincere it's not fake it's not fluff it's authentic not from the flesh but from the Spirit of God. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5.16, So I say, walk by the Spirit. If we walk by the Spirit, He'll produce the fruit. So we've asked three questions. When were we enabled to love at our salvation? Who are we to love one another? And how are we to love earnestly and from the heart? The final question that helps us to understand this passage is why should we love like this? Why should we love like this? Verse 23 tells us, since you have been born again. <laughs> we are to love one another to the fullest extent because you have been born again. You have received this love in Christ. And when you were born again, it's not of perishable seed, but of imperishable a seed that will not perish you see in other words you've been born again from an imperishable eternal seed which has produced an imperishable and eternal new life it's almost as if peter anticipated his readers we're going to ask him this but why should we love like that peter for you have been born again he says 
That's why. <laughs> That's why. 1 John 4, verse 7 puts it this way. Listen, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, as we uh, look at this term in verse 23, being born again, we understand that there's something very um, momentary about this in one sense. When we think of a, a child's birth, we understand there's a, a decisive time when a child is born. It's an actual event. Uh, there's a time and a date marked on the uh, child's uh, birth certificate, right? Uh, that's because when someone is born, they're born at an actual moment in time, an actual moment. Of course, uh, pre-birth, there's birth pains, and the mother goes through. She can have contractions and, and experience hours of, of labor. But the actual birth, when the child is born, is a momentary event, all right? And so I want to look at the concept quickly of being born again from the viewpoint of the decisiveness of this. You're not partially born again. There's no such thing as a, a closet Christian or a sort of Christian. When the Lord returns, you're with him or you're against him. There, you can't straddle the, the two lanes of the road. One goes to Christ, one goes to hell. There's only two paths. There's not a third or a fourth. There's not many ways to get to heaven. Oprah comes up with that kind of stuff, not the Bible. And so when we're born again, there's this immediate momentary eventful death and new life, uh, an, an immediate um, transformation that occurs in, in a moment in, in history. The, the regenerated man or woman uh, in, a, in a moment of miraculous time ceases to the, be the man or woman that they were. The, the old life was over and a new life began. It was decisive. And even though I can even attest that, I sort of thought I had a born-again date and I would say later, hmm, actually, I think probably God did a born-again, a different date than when I thought. Um, we might thought I was born again. Uh, I went and got baptized and, and, and I believed. But I know now later God did another work in me. That, that I was being drawn then. I loved God and, and I believed, but he made me new at a distinct point in time. Again, we can be drawn to God, but we are born again in a moment in time, just like a, a baby is born from the birth. You are a new creation in Christ. The old man is buried. The new man is come. He is out of the reach of condemnation, called to life in righteousness. And Romans chapter 6, 3 through 4, Paul gives us kind of a, a quick example of this scripturally. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This verse, let me first say, is a dry one, okay? This, uh, 
verse, it, it, Paul isn't speaking about water baptism, but a spiritual immersion in Christ symbolized by water baptism. Immersion into Christ Jesus means believers are placed into his death. And we symbolize that in our baptism. Uh, but this is where you actually die. Your old self, your old life dies and is buried with Christ. And then God uh, considers them as participating in Christ's resurrection by which we share in this new life in him as we're raised. So the new birth entails a, a complete and radical, decisive transformation that has to be described in extreme terms of death and birth. These are big terms. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Very decisive. The other thing I would like to point out concerning this new birth is that infants didn't uh, cooperate in their birth, right? Infants did not induce their own procreation. Just as a, a baby wasn't uh, responsible for being born uh, in her, his or her physical world, uh, when we are born again, we also, um, it's not up to us. No more than can those who are dead in trespasses and sin just give themselves life. No, it's all a work from our almighty and sovereign God. Notice what it says in verse uh, 23 um, again. It says, since you have been born again in, in a decisive moment in redemptive history, you, you were transformed from the darkness uh, to light, from blindness to sight, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of, of God's precious son. Your, your, your old life died, your new life came alive, and it was all a work of God's grace. In John chapter 3, you remember the scene where we have the teacher of Israel, uh, Nicodemus, um, a religious leader, and he comes to visit the Lord Jesus Christ at night, and Jesus says to him, uh, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this blows Nicodemus's socks off. He has no idea what Jesus is talking about. In fact, he asked Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered him, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Amen? So the Spirit of God comes and goes, giving new life as He wills. You don't know where He comes from or where He's going, but the Spirit of the Lord is on the move, and we are all here today as witnesses. Are we not, beloved? For He took that which was dead, and He has given you new life now how was this accomplished go back to verse 23 peter says since you've been born again not a perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of god now now follow this our, our new birth our our spiritual regeneration is, is the work solely of god but god has a means by which he does it 
he initiates our spiritual birth with an imperishable seed. An imperishable seed. And what is that imperishable seed, you ask? The living and abiding word of what? God. God. That's the seed he uses, the living and abiding word. In fact, in James chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So before we were regenerated through the work of God and his Holy Spirit, the word of God is the seed he uses which brings forth life. That's why it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now in order to demonstrate the authority and consistency of his point, Peter does something that a lot of the New Testament writers love to do. He turns to the Old Testament. Okay? And Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 40, 6 through 8 in verses 24 and 25. Notice what it says in verse 24 in the first part of 25. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. Then he closes the chapter by saying and this word is the good news that was preached to you. When we look out at one of these nice fields, you can even maybe look out in the field behind us there. It's, it's all grass and weeds. And what is the glory of that grass? What sticks out in, in fields every once in a while? One of those beautiful flowers. Have you ever seen one of those gorgeous flowers just sitting there amongst a, a grassy or weedy field? And that flower rises out of the grass and, and that's the glory. That's the beauty within this field of, of grass. But it's the grass that is the most common. The grass is what covers most of it. And you know, when winter comes that, that grass begins to wither. And even that beautiful flower eventually falls to the ground. Right? It all fades and crumbles and eventually both the the grass and the flower dies. But what's Peter's point here? Well, the point is in those two words there in verse uh, 24. All flesh. All flesh. Everything that is of flesh dies. Everything. Whether it's common like grass or whether it's beautiful and unique like that gorgeous little flower. You get that? Think of the uh, very best flesh has to offer. Those are maybe the, the people in Hollywood, the, the beautiful people, uh, the, the healthiest, the, the strongest, the most honorable, the, the most articulate, uh, the wisest, the, the most gifted. Oh, look at those flowers over there. Uh, flowers are also the things that, that man on his own produces, the, the buildings, his, his fine art, uh, music, uh, his science, uh, his legacy that he leaves. That's all the, the flowers, the greatness of man. That's the flower that buds for a time. We're seen, we're recognized, we're applauded, 
very nice, well done. But then at the end of all that, he dies. He dies just like every other common man before him. We're all going to die. Everything of the flesh dies. Generations come and go, and like the leaves that uh, come about each year, they wither and then fall to the ground. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And the dust of Caesar is no more majestic than the dust of the beggar. At the end, we're all flesh. And so Peter quotes the prophet Isaiah, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord remains forever. And remember, it was that imperishable seed, the word of the Lord, that he used to do a work on you that created new life. And you were born again. Not of something that was perishable, but imperishable. You will never die. Isn't that incredible? That's the point he's making here. And so the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And it is through that word, Peter says, that you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And then he closes this incredible chapter by saying, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. It was that truth that evangelized you, that true and unchanging word. So when did we receive the ability to love? At salvation. Who are we to love one another? How are we to love earnestly and from the heart? And why are we to love? Because you have been born again to a living hope, beloved. The call in this text is clear as the body of Christ. We are to love one another just as he has loved you. And Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I submit to you that it's time for the church to show this world what genuine love is all about. We're capable of that by the grace in Christ. And let them see the, the length and the depth that Christ went through on the cross at Calvary to forgive you by how you walk in such mercy and compassion and kindness for your love for one another. As Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. As love that day ran red down Calvary's mountain. He did it all for you in order to pay your ransom, to purchase you back from sin's curse. And because of that work he accomplished, Ephesians 2 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us in, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And again, Paul says in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What a Savior we have in the Lord 
Jesus Christ. If the word has pierced your heart today, or if you would like to meet or um, pray after service, we'd love to meet with you. Um, you can come forward and stand as we sing the song of invitation, Forever He is Glorified. Thank you. <laughs>